It gives me great pleasure today to welcome a new guest to Progressive Recovery. That's Mary O'Malley, who's known for two books in particular, What's in the Way is the Way and The Gift of Our Compulsions. Mary, thanks so much for agreeing to chat with us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Ron. I'd love to start the way we start all of our programs here, which is for you to give our listeners a good thumbnail of your recovery story from, you know, the early part that got you into this this adventure that you're in. Well, I think the uh, it's a radically different way to say it, but I was really gifted with being an extremely compulsive person. And it started when I was 10 years old and uh, mainly with food and, oh, God, I tried diets and starving and I would binge and throw up and so on and so forth. And this all culminated when I was 23 that I gained 23 pounds in a year. That's from hospital scale to hospital scale and uh, was washing a lot of it down with alcohol and taking every pill I could get my hands on. And, uh, you know, my uh, definition of compulsion is any recurring activity that we use to manage our experience around which we have little or no choice. But my Reader's Digest version uh, of uh, compulsions is the act of turning away from ourselves. I was carrying so much pain and I didn't know what to do with it. And... uh, and so I turned away from myself. I was constantly trying to numb myself. And, oh, gosh, I tried to control. And then, you know, and everything would come roaring back. And then when I was 27, a teacher came into my life that taught me, in the seeing is the movement. And that was the beginning, the very bare beginning of my recovery that I was trying to fix myself. I was I was deciding that there was something wrong with me, that my compulsions were bad and wrong, and I had to control them and try to get rid of them. But it, so, And what he was basically saying is just be with everything that's happening inside of you. That's the phenomenal power of human attention. But it wasn't until a number of years later I met a phenomenal human being. His name is Stephen Levine, and he wrote many books on death and dying. Uh, But really he taught about how to be fully alive. And he was the person that uh, reintroduced me to my heart. And when those two skills, curiosity and compassion, or I sometimes call it spaciousness, they came together in me, and I began to bring that to my compulsions rather than seeing them as the enemy, you know, that it was something I had to control and I was a bad person because I couldn't control them. The eater, because the uh, alcohol and drugs had faded away on their own, the eater became my ally. And it was my guide back to life. And now the eater has been calm for many, many decades and, and, you know, I keep a really good European chocolate bar in my house at all times. And when I am <laughs> interested in eating more than just a piece of chocolate to enjoy it, I know that that eater is trying to take care of something inside of me. And I use curiosity and compassion to meet and take care of what the uh, compulsive one uh, was trying to take care of. And because of that, uh, my compulsion is very, very quiet most of the time. 
so I have to say, first of all, that Stephen Levine is, oh, my God, what a wonderful guy. His unattended Uh sorrow was instrumental for me. Uh But I, I wonder if you dial it back, where in the world did all that pain come from, Mary? What was that about? Well, I think that basically we're all raised by what I call unconscious giants, you know, these parents that they had left themselves a long time ago. And so we were wounded. All of us were wounded, even with parents that loved us. And here we were, you know, if you ever look into the eyes of a babe and it's just God, you can see the whole universe in there. And we were wide open. All of us were wide open. We were just fascinated, you know. Um, asparagus wasn't necessarily something to eat. It was something to shampoo in your hair, you know. Um, <laughs> we were just, we had no ideas of, about life. There was a time when there was no thoughts in our head. And into this wide open space came the unconsciousness of our parents. So slowly and surely, we began to uh, hold our breath to tighten our body, to get away from these really deep feelings we felt when we were young, that there was nobody there to help us with them. You know, let's say you had this wonderful goldfish, and let's call him Henry, you know, and he was beside your bed, and it was had a light behind it at night, and oh, you and Henry would just commune, because to you, he was so much more than a goldfish. And one day you wake up, and... Henry, Henry's dead, and you're just crying, and you go to your parents, and they say, oh, it was only a goldfish, you know, we'll buy you another one, and then you cry more, and you say, oh, come on, stop being such a sissy, you know, grow up, and then you go to your room, and you're just not only heartbroken about Henry, but heartbroken that you're all alone in what you are experiencing, all that Stuff that we experienced that we didn't know what to do with, we stuffed inside of ourselves and we ran away to our head. And our head, our whole life has been trying to do life and do it right and secretly feeling that it's not doing it right enough. And when all of our doing uh, does not bring us the connection that we long for, we have our compulsions. They promise. Oh, they will make us feel so much better. And the sad thing is they do for a very short period of time. But then they actually, in the long run, take us further away from ourselves. And I had the kind of childhood that you wouldn't want to wish on anybody. So I Mm. really, truly had a tremendous amount of pain. But again... Uh, you know, uh, in fact, when I um, self-published the book before my publisher picked it up, my title was Healing and Being Healed by Our Compulsions. Not mm. only did I need my compulsions when I was unconscious, when I was far away from myself, because, you know, believe you me, the, some of the grief that we carry and some of the aloneness and and some of the not-enoughness that we all carry, if we really stayed open to that agony, I think our heart would just break. But also, now our compulsions, whenever they are there, they are highlighting the fact that there's something inside of you that needs your attention. So that's what I mean by they actually become a guide back to 
being fully alive, that we actually set, you know, I call them feelings, you know, the loneliness, the despair, the not enoughness that we all carry. But really what it is is bound up energy. It's our bound up joy. And that is what is asking to be set through free through the light of our attention. It really doesn't want us to stuff it back down again, numb it again through the world of our compulsions. Mary, before you moved into a lot of this space you're in now, were you like many in getting a start with the 12 steps of recovery? I know they're instrumental for so many of us. Was that part of your experience as well? Yes. Yes. For a short time in my uh, 20s. But then this teacher came into my life that taught me in the seeing is the movement. And I felt like it was almost like I took the 12 steps and I found a different version for myself. It was uh, not a need to fix myself anymore. You know, it definitely was, you know, turn myself over to a power that is higher than me. You know, that was just so, so instrumental in my healing. But uh, I, I feel like for me and for a lot of people, I know that the 12 steps were a stepping stone, that they were hmm. necessary at times. It's just like if you break your leg, you need to put a cast on it. But I don't mm-hmm. want a cast on my leg my whole life. And I feel when this man taught me how to be curious about what I was experiencing rather than fixing it, and then I was taught how to be curious with great heart, then the cast could come off so now I could dance and sing. Now, I'm going to offer a phrase because I, I thought about it in the scene is the movement, which I'd like for you to explain, but it does sound like this, this approach you were taught is filled with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And so how did that fit into this seeing the seeing is the movement, which our listeners probably want to know more about? Well, let me give you an example, and, and then we can talk about it more. And uh, it's an example out of my own life. Uh, my eater had been calm for a long, long time. And then I woke up on 9-11, and the phone started ringing, and clients mm-hmm. came, and a group came, and a lot of people were dealing with a lot of stuff, which I was there for them. And when the last person walked out of the door and I closed the door, I had an experience that I hadn't had for a number of decades, and that was the panicked. It was like a tsunami wave. I have to get to the grocery store, and I have to get lots and lots of food. And oh. uh, it, it just it just took me over, and I made it all the way into the bedroom and where my purse was, and I made it all the way to the door where out to my car. And now mm-hmm. curiosity kicked in. Mm-hmm. And I said, ooh, wait, what's going on here? The eater inside of me... This is exactly what it said. Don't give me any of that awakening crap. We're going to the store. Now, if I had said, no, we're not, by far the compulsive eater would have taken over. That's the Mm -hmm. statistic from the U.S. Surgeons General. 98% of every pound that is lost in America is gained back 
plus some within a year and a half. So what we actually resist and try to control controls us. That was what I was doing for all those years until I began to learn about curiosity and then couple it with compassion. So I said something that I oftentimes say, you know, when the compulsive one does show up. Well, I just remind you, we don't feel very well when we take care of us in that way. You know, let's go take a walk. And the compulsive one said, no, we're going to the store. Well, because I had created a relationship with it, a respect-filled relationship. Remember I was saying, you know, it was now my not my enemy. It was my ally. It was my guide. I said to it, I said, I'll tell you what. Give me five minutes on the porch and let me go exploring. And if you still want to go to the store after five minutes, we'll go to the store. It trusted me because I had recreated this relationship with it. And so I went and sat on the porch. It was a beautiful fall day. And I took some long, slow out breaths because everything was a jangle inside of me. And as soon as I began to kind of calm the system down a bit through my breath, I noticed a just, uh, I don't even, a fire, uh, uh, a bomb ready to explode in my stomach. It was a very, very uncomfortable feeling. And I knew that was what the eater was trying to numb out, was trying to get rid of. And so I brought my breath into that area. And then I let my attention settle there. Just being with that experience. And this doesn't always happen. It takes a while of learning how to be with what you have run away from your whole life. But since I've done this a lot, out of this fiery, explosive bomb in my stomach, came tears, just the grief of a lifetime, the grief for all the people that died, for all the children that lost parents, you even for the terrorists of what kind of life had they lived that that made sense to them. And I didn't get lost in it. I wasn't, I wasn't the grief. I was there with this grief. And it took about 10 minutes, and the eater did not say at the five-minute mark, five minutes, you know, come on, he said, we'll go to the store. Because it knew that I was taking care of what it had been trying to take care of by eating. And it was such a deep, deep place that gotten woken up after all these years of everything being really calm that the eater you know, I like to say our compulsive ones are, are uh, lumbering beasts with an IQ of 55 on automatic pilot. You know, I don't care whether you are smoking or eating or drinking or drugging or shopping or just staying overly busy. You know, this, this part of ourselves says, thou shalt not experience what you are experiencing. <laughs> and yet, when I brought my attention right there in the seeing is the movement my attention and my immediate experience met i wasn't thinking about it i wasn't trying to fix it i wasn't judging it i was just there with it 
and the bound up energy in that holding was set free. And it moved through me. And when I got up off of that chair and came inside the house, there was not one, one, one part of me that was interested in going to the store where 15 minutes before I felt like I was going to die. It was almost like I was hyperventilating. I've got to get to the store. got to get to the store. You know, and it's, it's the compulsive, compulsive one inside of us. It's such an irrational place because it was trained from a very early age that we must get away from what we are experiencing or we will die. And I'm not exaggerating. That is mm-hmm. deep in the heart of us, that we must stay away from our grief, our aloneness, our despair, our not-enoughness, even our anger. And yet my experience is the exact opposite is true, that when we can come and be present with great heart, things heal. I'm going to ask you about great heart, but first I have to tell you about one of my mentors, a guy who went by the the name of Jim P., who was very, very long time in recovery, and he used to say, you got to cuddle up to your fears and your pains and make them make them your friend so that they, so that they, so, so so that they can teach you so so oh uh, I, mean, I just got chills yeah the the that that whole idea that or 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 as 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 a current friend likes to say that we're just going to have to stop running from ourselves it right. sounds like it's that it's that it's that cuddling up to it with great heart and curiosity yeah. as you said that that makes all the difference in the world. Can you yeah. say more about about that? Well, it, it, it we have been trained to get the hell out of Dodge, you know? Right. And if we really see that there were parts of ourselves that we froze inside of ourselves when we are were very, very young, and we have hated these parts, we have tried to get rid of these parts. We have tried to numb these parts. We have judged these parts. We have been afraid of these parts. And these parts are like a bear in the woods. If you run away from the bear, the bear runs after you. And that's all that we have known. You know, really, I've just got to manage. i got to, you know, muscle my compulsion to the ground and, what most people don't acknowledge is if they muscle one compulsion to the ground, another one will take over. You know, we stop uh, drinking and we smoke more. We stop smoking and we eat more. We stop overeating and we shop more. And so these parts, well, Carl Jung was the first person that basically said, we got a whole cast of characters in there, you know. <laughs> and, and to me, I am somebody that in those dark years, you know, the year after I try, I ate, gained 97 pounds in a year, I tried to kill myself three times because oh. all that numbing, all that trying to get away from it only made everything worse. 
And I was in such despair. It was like I was in a deep, 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 dark hole. Imagine a shaft that was a very narrow shaft, and it went down, you know, miles into the ground. And I just kept on slipping further and further into that hole until this teacher came into my life, and then Stephen came into my life and began to get me curious about the hole, began to get me curious about all the various parts of me to not judge my anger, but to say hello, uh, to not be afraid of this deep, dark despair, to keep it company, to not be uh, totally frozen around our not-enoughness, but to befriend it. That's what we long for. As we bring each of these moving parts that most of them our compulsion has been trying to manage. But as we bring them in a safe way, and that's why I write my books, because it's got to be in a safe way, as we bring them into the light of our kind, caring awareness, they get enfolded in our hearts, and we become what I call the whole human being. A whole human being isn't a perfect human being. There is no such thing as a perfect human being. We're all made out of dark and light. And to begin to bring these parts into your awareness and to be touch them with your heart, you become what I call a whole human being. And you become a healing presence in the world because you're not at war anymore with anything inside of you, including your compulsion. I'm sure some listeners are wondering, Mary, anybody who knows about the kind of demons you're talking about on the inside, that kind of oh, evil, yeah. the, the stuff we're so fearful of, I, I mean, on the one hand, there's got to be an uplift of, of inspiration and possibility, but surely some of them are saying, my God, Mary, how do you how do you get up close and personal with this right. kind of stuff that right. just terrifies you? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, the most important thing is to get is it you call them demons. It looks like there's monsters. I can't tell you how many people said that if I, mm-hmm. if I start allowing my sadness out, I'll never stop crying. Right. But slowly and surely you recognize that these are just very young parts of you in monster costumes. Now, yeah, with that said, we have to, and I I said it earlier and I'll say it again, we have to find a safe path. We don't Mm -hmm. just go barging in. And this is why I wrote The Gift of Our Compulsions, and then in my latest book, What's in the Way is the Way, the gift of our compulsions works with just our compulsive nature, although mm-hmm. I say in that book, our core compulsion is to struggle. Mm. All the other compulsions are an attempt to numb out from that struggle. In what's in the way, I open it up into all the struggles, you know, relationship, financial, work, health, compulsions. And what I created was a uh, 10-week series where Mm. you can start
part flexing the muscle of your curiosity. Most of us get anywhere near close to, let's say, our not-enoughness or our aloneness, and we just get sucked right into it because the muscle of our curiosity is very weak. So it starts very, very slow with just a few minutes a day so that you can begin to come to a place where you say, oh, fear is here, rather than I am afraid. Mm-hmm. Now, the the rest of the weeks are all about discovering that there is not one piece of you that you need to be afraid of or you need to feel that is bad and wrong. There is not one part of you, including all those unskillful things you did. Oh, my God, I think about some of the unskillful things I did when I was drinking and drugging. Oh, my God. And you begin to discover slowly and surely how to open your heart to every single part of you. Now, if people are not interested uh, you know, in um, either one of those books, what they can do is give themselves the gift of just, let's say, three minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And this three minutes that what you do is you set aside time to notice life. Let's say you sit on your porch and your intention is to notice all the sounds around you, the door slamming, the heater coming on, the car driving by, the airplane going overhead, the dog barking. And your intention is, and and when you're first beginning this, it can be very helpful just to count how many new sounds you hear. Your intention is to Really experience life without your mind laying a story over the top of it. Now, I guarantee you, when you forget, when you begin this, you may notice two sounds. And let's say you you then heard a car go by and you went, Oh my God, I was supposed to drop the car off to get the oil change yesterday and I totally forgot to do that and I've got to call my friend and see if she can do it. You know, I don't have time to do this. Now you're back up in your head again. That's the, your muscle of your curiosity is not very strong. You are easily pulled back into the stories that amplify our fear, our unworthiness, our anger, our despair, our aloneness. And so then, without judgment, when you notice that you're in your head again in stories about life, you bring it back to just this moment. And you can do this with your shower. You can do this with your morning bagel. You know, you can take a breath and notice life with every stoplight on your way to work. What begins to happen is that you begin to recognize there's life. And then there's a story about life. And you begin to realize you've lived in your story about life most of your life. And you begin to see that there's something really quite wonderful going on here. This great creative unfolding called life. That begins to begin 
have you become interested in then what is going on inside of you? Mary, I hear lots of technique here, which is great, and I'm, I'm glad you've referenced that it's in your books. What's the role of a mentor or a sponsor or a teacher or a spiritual advisor in this? It's, it's really obvious as I hear your clarity that you have greatly benefited from the hand of others. Oh, absolutely. What, what, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's that role and what should people be thinking about to, to have yeah. someone to aid them in this process? Absolutely, Ron. I mean, it is, we can't do this alone. We cannot. And it's like we're learning a new language. I call it the language of consciousness or the language of the heart, which, by the way, is our main brain. And, you know, if you try to learn Spanish from a book, you know, without really hearing it spoken, it's practically impossible. Or if you speak to somebody that speaks Spanish, you know, once every couple of months, well, you may progress a little. But if you hang out with somebody that speaks the language that you are longing for, that is when you begin to integrate it and make it your own. And I really strongly believe there are mentors for everyone. You know, if you're going to AA or Al-Anon, you know, wonderful place to find mentors. But, you know, if you don't have that in your community or you're not interested, then just ask life. The power of asking life without looking for an answer for help is just phenomenal. We're basically signaling life that we do want support. We are ready for support. And your mentor will come. You may meet them at the bus stop, you know. But it is pretty essential that we need to hang out with people that are speaking this same language. Because it's so new. It's so easy. Just like when you're sitting on the porch listening to your sounds in the morning, it's just so easy to get drawn back into that storyteller in your head that is always struggling with life. A question that rises for me, I hear resonating in all that you say a real message of hope. Yeah. What's your life like? Well, what is your life like today, having um, experienced so much of this healing and, and, and put so much of the past in the past where it belongs? What's that like for people when they do this work? You open back up again. That's the best way to say it, Ron. Hmm. You know, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, the man that did all the wonderful series on myth on PBS, yeah. wrote many books. And on the very first page of his book, The Power of Myth, he put this quote. And I put it on the very first page of my very first book, which is called Belonging to Life. And this is the quote. People say that what we're searching for is the meaning to life. I don't think that's what we're searching for at all. What we're searching for is the experience of being alive so that our experiences on the physical plane resonate in our very innermost being and we again know the rapture of being alive. That's what we long for. We're homesick to come back to life. That rapture he's talking about is found right here in this moment. In some ways, because I knew the exact opposite, because I knew the kind of darkness that you very rarely survive from, 
And now my life is, I mean, I travel the world and, and I write books and I, you know, speak in front of many, many people and I see people individually and really lead groups and all this. It's such a wonderful, wonderful life because I'm not only grounded here, but I am open to the great creative river of life. I trust it. Now, does that mean I am always open? No. I have very two very, very close family members that for the past year they have been dealing with critical illnesses. And it is, you know, when you watch people that you love uh, suffer, uh, you know, sometimes you think it would be, let me take it on, it would be far easier for me to deal with this inside of myself than it is to watch the people I love suffer. So mm. I've been describing my life as, you know, I've been in a hurricane, uh, a stage five hurricane, and most of the time I live in the eye of the hurricane. But at moments I get drawn into the winds, the winds of despair, the winds of fear for the future. And that's when the chocolate bar looks more interesting than just having a bite or two to melt in my mouth. That's when I know that it's time to uh, take a break. I may not be able to do it right then, but I say to my inner world, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'll be with you in an hour or two, or I'll be there right then. And I breathe. And I close my eyes, and I bring my attention back, and I befriend whatever is there. And then I'm back in the spaciousness that trust even what is going on with these two people that I love so dearly. That's coming back to life. That's riding the waves of life, because life will become easy and then difficult. It will become joyous and then it will become sorrowful. Again, I am so reminded of Stephen Levine's unattended sorrow, which I hear resonating in in all that you say. That I remember a phrase when I was chatting with him one day when he said that that not doing this calluses the heart and tarnishes the soul. Yes, Um, yes. Is, yes. is that we just we 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 lose ourselves? I guess is a way to we say do. it. And and you're proposing that we can rediscover ourselves and use our compulsions as our guide. We lose ourselves, <laughs> and then we actually are so in pain from losing ourselves, we take another step away from ourselves into our compulsions. And oh God, Ron, I tried to. I, I went a month without food once. And I went about three other times, two weeks without food, because I was going to control this eater. And what happened when I began eating again? I would just binge and binge and binge. And that is when I began to, I mean, you know, I'm a Taurus, so I'm a little thick-headed, but uh, I finally (laughs) began to realize that I wasn't a failure for trying to control my compulsions, it sure looked like everybody else could, but the statistics bear that, that that is not true. But that I wasn't a failure, that they were here to show me something. And that is when my eater, because that was the main one that was there you know, at that time, uh, that was when I began to 
ask my eater, you know, what are you trying to take care of? I would ask life, mm-hmm. what am I ready to see here? Rather than getting caught in the judgment of, oh, another binge or the despair of, oh, another binge, you know, I would get curious. And, of course, what I found was that unattended sorrow that showed up as fear and it showed up as sadness mm-hmm. and it showed up as anger and it showed up as not enoughness, but way down deep inside to actually come into that realm of the unattended sorrow with your hand in your heart. That sorrow just, it blooms, it blooms like, what's that flower that only blooms once every hundred years? I can't remember the name of it. You know, yeah, Yeah. it's white and has three leaves, you know, and you find it in the woods, you know, yeah. But it just blooms. That's what happened when I was with the grief in my stomach area. It just blooms when we discover the safety of turning towards and being with ourselves and being with ourselves in kindness, in compassion. Yes, there's been lots of calluses around our heart. But, oh, my God, the heart is just like a diamond. You know, the diamond can be, you know, buried deep in the ground for eons, and you unbury it, and it just sparkles the same with our hearts. So I know that people can find all about you at MaryOmalley.com, but what I'm interested in uh, as a close is what's the gentle nudge you would offer to our listeners, Mary, that would that would perhaps either I don't know, give them a give them a bit of a step step forward or an enticement. What would you say to call to them as a final thought? That you are not bad and wrong for being compulsive. Our compulsions are a finely crafted survival system that we need until we can discover how to be there with ourselves. And your compulsions are not bad and wrong. They are just a lumbering beast with an IQ of 55 on automatic pilot that says, I must not feel what I feel. And if you befriend your compulsion, you can even give your compulsion a name. I call mine Little One because even though it looks like this monster that used to want to devour everything, you know, it's just, it's a very young part of us that was trained to get away from what we are experiencing. So befriend it. Say hello and ask it without looking for an answer. What are you taking care of? And the answer will live itself through you. That's beautiful, Mary. Thank you so much for your hope. Thank you. You are welcome. Mm-hmm.